Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined by Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello. How's it going, Steve? Not too bad. How are you? Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm a veritable sunbeam of joy, as ever. What a happy notion. Yeah. Chilling, isn't it? <laughs> well, considering from the last podcast, the atmosphere that you created at the beginning, it's kind of the opposite, isn't it? I don't know what you mean. I thought that was positively <laughs> understated. It's always going to be a potential issue if I'm going to have any cause to be overly and unnecessarily theatric and being, you know, a little show-off. So, hey, what are you going to do? But yeah, no uh, noteworthy seasonal celebration in November, unless you count the fireworks one, which no one really does, let's be honest. Um, certainly no animation-related events that sort of center around that. So it's another normal podcast this time around, so, you know, buck up. I think there is something coming up in December. I can't remember what is coming up in December. Why, Steve, it's, you must tune in then for our Hanukkah special. <laughs> Happy Hanukkah. We'll do eight days of podcasts. <laughs> so what's been going on since Halloween? I don't know. I've been, <laughs> I've just been floating through the days as I always do. <laughs> you know, one bleeds into the next. There's a yeah. sort of haze of, actually, I've been, well, you've been quite busy. You've been festivaling it up again. I have, yes. And, uh, uh, Bradford. I think one of the things I look forward to every year, the Bradford Animation Festival. I'm a Bradford lad. I was born there. It's nice to return to my uh, my hometown. Only one week in the year. <laughs> that'll to, do, uh, yeah. that'll, That will do nice. That's enough. That's <laughs> and uh, based at the Media Museum, it's the Bradford Animation Festival. And uh, this, is, this year was my 10th year. I volunteer every year as well, so it was my fifth year as a volunteer. What's the long game with volunteering five years in a row? Is it just that it's a fun thing to do? Well, it, it, it's fun because I've got a series of photographs now of me gradually losing my hair and getting older and older and older. Ah. Then uh, all the in a varying array of different brightly coloured t-shirts. Against the with, same uh, backdrop. That's good. So anyway, the Bradford Animation Festival in its 19th year. Obviously, the big 2-0 next year, but this year, um, quite, a, quite a good year, quite a good uh, roundup. It's quite bizarre to think that uh, the likes of Aardman Animations, Leica Studios, and in the past, like the producers of The Simpsons, Richard Williams, you know, all these big names sort of descended on my hometown, which is generally well-known for riots. Always a good balance of favourites from the industry masterclasses from the likes of Curtis Joblin and Joanna Quinn and, and obviously the Squiggly podcast favourite Barry Purvis. He brings that mm -hmm. enthusiasm for animation in the award ceremony every year. And uh, this year he gave a particular ribbon to the Guardian article that we uh, that we gave a little pacing to ourselves in the last podcast. Oh yes, yes. The anti-stop motion one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was fun seeing Barry uh, giving it like what for. Oh, did he not agree with the article? Uh, no, no, funnily <laughs> sure. enough. Strange. It's, it's interesting, whenever you read an article that's sort of um, uh, uh, fatuous and ill-informed, it kind of, like, crushes your spirit a little bit. But then you read the comments, and if I remember right, the comments on that one were overwhelmingly, like, pro-stop motion and, and calling the guy out for just being utterly uncultured and not knowing what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. It was a bit like reading a Daily Mail article. Yeah. Like, I think there's, there's a function of some journalism where the articles are so piss poor and so just philosophically and culturally irredeemable. And you think to yourself, oh, my God, this is what it's come to. 
And then you read like the comment section and it's everyone, hundreds of people just as up in arms as you are. It's like, oh, okay. It's like a sort of spiritual detox where you just lose faith in everything and then you're cleansed again. Hopefully, you know, if Squiggly continues to grow and progress as it has been doing over the last uh, year and a half, you or I will be writing such fatuous and ill-informed articles, getting everyone up in arms and uh, uh, giving back in that same way. Fingers crossed. I'm just going to start bashing everything. I just figure the best way to win people over is to, like, take their precious childhood memories and just squish them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's how you make friends. That's always fun. Well, uh, unfortunately, I myself was not there. I have been fulfilling my obligations uh, locked in a spiraling death dive of um, closely monitored national distribution and publishing, which is the closest I've ever come to literally losing my mind and my love for my fellow man. Good news is, I now know that I will never murder anyone because <laughs> I've been so frustrated by every conceivable pitfall uh, that could possibly come up, coming up. I've been very good. I've become very zen. I've taught myself all sorts of anger management techniques and finding myself saying over and over again uh, last week, I really wish I was in Bradford right now. Because, uh, of course, every time I go on Twitter, it's you or the Bradford people or other people who are there saying what a great time they're having, how fun it is, what a great festival it is. And I'm sitting here sending my 800th email to, you know, the printers. So uh, my Christmas, it, my forthcoming Christmas is already ruined and everyone's having fun without me. <laughs> We should probably just not talk about me anymore for the rest of the evening. <laughs> just stick with the uh, the actual agenda of the podcast. That suits me. <laughs> I think it suits everyone. <laughs> I think it suits our entire listening audience. <laughs> so, uh, so while you were in in publishing hell, Ben, uh -huh. obviously I was in Bradford. Well, first of all, how many days does it go on for? Well, for this year, it went on from the thirteenth to the seventeenth of November. Uh, with the first two days overlapping with the second part of the festival. So the first two days you had Bath Game, and then from day two you had the Bradford Animation Festival. So the Bath Gamers had a day to themselves, and then basically the animators had the rest of the festival to themselves. It's nice to see a festival that does incorporate game and animation quite closely together. Hmm. And so you get the likes of Sony turning up, you know, character animator uh, Christine Phelan from, from Valve turned up. Talk a little bit about her career. Yeah. We also had TT Games, the people behind the, um, you know, the Lego movie franchises, you know, the... Um, Those, like, Lego games you play? You know, like the, the Lego Indiana Jones, Lego uh, Star Wars. Like Batman Lego and... Yeah, the, similar, yeah. So the guys behind uh, TT Games who, who created that. And then guys who mm -hmm. worked on um, iPad Games, uh, a studio, oh, which yeah. I, unfortunately, I'd never heard of before, called Nyam Nyam. N-Y-A-M. Uh -huh. Y-A-M. <laughs> yam yam. Yam yam. Yeah. Yam yam. Wonderful. I love it. They work on iPad games. And also Sony Entertainment turned up to talk about, uh, you know, augmented reality gaming, things like that. Bethesda Game Studios talked about the history of art and style within video games, which is becoming more and more sophisticated as the years go by, you know, and, and, and the sort of close link that they bear with uh, with the animation world. But speaking of the animation world, we also had uh, talks by Rob Morgan, who uh, who you interviewed a couple of podcasts ago. I certainly did. And so he, he came along and terrified everyone with tales of uh, Bobby Yair and the cat with hands 
and uh, and his various other delights. Had you had you seen Bobby? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. People watching through the hands. It was uh, it was, <laughs> it was a special little treat for everybody. Excellent. And then the big thing, obviously, it's a hundred years since Chuck Jones was born, and so uh, Valerie Corson, uh, Chuck Jones' granddaughter, arrived at the festival to go through her own recollections of working with her granddad, and she went through her favourite films and his favourite films. And the real treat behind that was that the films that they screened, the thirty-five millimeter prints, actually belonged to Chuck Jones. Oh wow! We were watching copies of One Froggy Evening that he would have watched. Wow. I nearly went into geek override when I was told that. Seeing those, you know, proper original from the actual collection of the man himself, that's got to be pretty cool. And do they look good? Are they good quality? Do they look sharp? Uh, not as sharp as, as say, a digitally remastered Blu-ray would be. But uh, the fact that they were actually showing the creative vibe that everyone got from, from viewing them and, and, and laughing along, it really sort of demonstrated what Valerie is now trying to accomplish she now runs the Chuck Jones Centre for Creativity, which aims to inspire people using Chuck Jones's work. And I can't really think of anyone sort of finer to accomplish that. I don't know if you can. So people, like a modern audience, they do watch these old cartoons and they laugh, right? Oh, oh it, was, it was hilarious. We actually watched four of the shorts. The first one was One Froggy Evening. Mm. Everyone knows that one. If, if you can't guess from the title, it's the one where the guy in the 50s finds the box with a singing frog in, but it only sings and dances when he sees the frog. As he goes through life trying to promote this frog, it just turns into a normal frog whenever anyone else is watching. But as soon as anyone else is out of the room, it just sings and torments him. Such a funny concept, and uh, you know it holds out throughout the whole seven minutes. I think it's one of the, those old Warner Brothers shorts that kind of holds up like best of all. Like There are certain qualities that I think... Because comedy dates in so many ways, certainly like topical dialogue-driven comedy. But physical stuff and conceptual stuff really has much more of a kind of lifespan. If you watch something like The Honeymooners, like a sitcom from the, the 60s or the 50s, certain elements of the dialogue, like the jokes, will have probably dated horribly. But the fundamental like root core concept of just this poor kind of ineffectual whipped guy who's trying desperately to assert himself and it's just sort of a laughable premise and the frustration and the, the sort of um, intermarital dependence that, you know, is also his undoing and all sorts of elements like that really make it very watchable because it, conceptually that's never going to go away. Everyone knows that dynamic in any couple. If you play that sort of principle to animation, say some of the later wordier animations that relied more on sort of scripts and dialogue. They're the ones that seem more kind of locked in the time that they were made. But when you think of something like the, the I mean, something like, you know, animals getting hurt, like Daffy Duck, you know, swinging down as, as Robin Hood and he hits every tree on the way down. That will never not be funny. No. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. And the, the the whole like thing of the frog that's just a very docile, very sedentary frog, like, bruh, bruh. Yeah. And then for no reason whatsoever, he just picks up a top hat and a cane and goes into an upbeat musical number. Like, that's probably, like, the birth of real random humor that has, it, it, it lasts to this day. I mean, I probably still chuckle at that, and I've probably seen it, like, you know, 20 times. But uh, I could see, like, an audience who'd never seen that before, something that came out decades and decades ago, 
probably responding very strongly to that because it's just at its heart a childish yet quite expertly executed style of comedy that I just think everyone can kind of find some connection to. Mm. It's that kind of stuff that he would have in his old shorts that really kind of speaks volumes about, you know, why he would be the perfect person as an inspiration, as a as a figurehead for something that's, you know, designed to inspire creativity and cultivate it. Yeah, I, I wish I could have seen that. You, you, with every sort of Chuck Jones, Bob Clampett, you're always laughing at somebody getting hurt. Yeah. You're always, whether it be Daffy, whether it be the poor sap who's opened a box with a singing frog in, whether it's any of Bugs Bunny's victims. It's not as simple as that. Bugs Bunny will only attack yeah. once he's been disturbed. And the thing about inspiring and, and continuing to inspire, we also watched Feed the Kitty. There was a, a character called Mark Antony, which was this big butch bulldog, voiced, I would say, perfectly by Mel Planck, who finds a kitten. And he goes from being horrible to falling in love with this kitten. Now, if you haven't seen this short, but you've seen, you've seen other things such as Monsters, Inc., um, certain, a South Park, the South Park episode with Cthulhu, you will instantly recognise some of the relationships. Like, for example, the first bit, there's a, there's a bit where, the, where Mark Antony believes that um, the kitten has been turned into cookies. Um, and as he's looking in through the kitchen window, the exact emotions are, are duplicated for when Sully thinks that uh, Boo has been crushed in Monsters, Inc. You know the bit where she's oh, in the, okay. yeah, in yeah, the rubbish yeah. dump thing? You could watch the two side by side, but I, I think Chuck Jones is obviously the original and the best. Uh, and also, like I said, South Park, there's a bit where um, Cartman is in his superhero get-up as the coon, and he's, 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 um, he summons up Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot he called himself the coon. <laughs> Are you okay? We carry on. Carry it, was, on. it was a raccoon costume, wasn't it? It was definitely yeah, a okay. raccoon costume. <laughs> just to be clear. So yeah, he's in the he's in the costume. And um in order to subdue this this enormous beast, he sort of claws up on Cthulhu's back and sort of patters around and snuggles into him and it just melts his heart. Right. In very much the same way that Kitty did with uh, with Mark Antony. Now is that a is that a direct reference to the the Chuck Jones short or is it just sort of taking like a yeah. sort of yeah oh, okay, it's, it's it got to be it's got to be a direct reference you can you can pop them next to each other it's got to be a direct reference i do like like getting references you didn't get before when you like when you think something's just an original joke um Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you sort of realize, oh, okay, that was paying like a, a and like watching like classic films, for example, explains so many Simpsons jokes. Yeah, yeah. Like if you watch Citizen Kane. There's like ninety bits in the Simpsons that were just kind of weird that suddenly make sense. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And Hitchcock films and um, uh, one I saw a little while ago that I hadn't. It was a good episode of The Simpsons, and it would, I hadn't. For some reason, I hadn't seen it in a in a long while, and from memory, I'm paraphrasing. But Lisa is upset with Bart, so she's rigged the cupcakes in the house with electrical impulses, so that whenever he tries to get a cupcake throughout the episode, he gets an electric shot because he's such a f-ing idiot. He doesn't get what the connection is to the point where he has like nerve damage. So it comes to like later on in the episode, they're having dinner, and and you know, Marjorie Homer says, "Bart, go get dessert." So he goes into the kitchen and there are these two cupcakes up on the table and he's reaching up for the cupcakes and it gets very, very ominous. And 
all of a sudden is that scene in your clockwork orange where mcdowell's reaching for the girl's tits and he just can't do it <laughs> and so he just collapses on the floor <laughs> but it's so like it's so unsubtle like there are little like you know nipply cherries on the top of the cupcakes <laughs> and just but like desperately trying to grab onto them and he can't <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. What did they say? Um, the, I think they said uh, the Simpsons, if they recut, you know, cut out all the references, they could more than likely make the full Godfather trilogy just out yeah. of the references <laughs> that they've done in the show. You know, and obviously uh, Family Guy went went right ahead and just, just made their own Star Wars trilogy. So They were always more explicit, I think, with, with their references. It would be like, a, mm. hey, Lois, do you remember the time that, you know, insert movie reference here, and then it's, yeah. it's a scene from Ghostbusters or it's a scene from Star Wars or Indiana Jones or whatever, which, you know, it was funny at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I like Family yeah. Guy. Gonna... Oh, Tangent. Did you watch this new Channel 4 show? The um, Full English. Yeah. I've been busy at Bradford. <laughs> okay. I've missed it. That's my excuse. Is yeah. it is it good? Go on, Ben. Let's have the full opinion of. Unfortunately, I cannot. I'm not afforded my full range of expression, or really a considered opinion, because I, I, for various reasons, was unable to watch the entire episode. I would say it's actually worth watching, just out of the 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 morbid curiosity. I'm not going to out and out say it's a it's a terrible show, because it's it's sort of silly to judge anything based on. Just seeing a few minutes of it um but it's this is what really kind of like screamed out at me was a kind of desperation i would say of of capturing the essence of the family guy slash seth mcfarlane legacy uh. you know he i mean seth mcfarlane i guess he's allowed to make the same show three or four times most of those shows like american dad or cleveland or whatever like you you, you need a few seconds to to tell which one it is because so many elements are completely interchangeable and identical that's his thing that's what he's forged for himself Mazeltov. it's when you see like people desperately trying to say okay well that's that's a formula that you know american television is telling us is the formula that we need to go for to be entertaining and i'm sure plenty of freelancers or not even freelancers studios will share this particular gripe because this has happened like three times i think that i could cite from memory to me alone in you know three active professional years of being a freelancer the conversation with the client who sort of vaguely knows about animation and their style guide is simply them saying over the phone, you know, we want it like Family Guy. Or even better, we want it like Family Guy meets and then insert completely different show that has no bearing and would be an awful, awful mix with Family Guy. <laughs> One of them was, um, we want it to be Family Guy meets Gorillas. Well, you know what? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> what do you think of them apples? I'd rather not eat for a month. <laughs> that actually morphed into a very pleasant job because it, it's one of those things where, like, it was the client sort of you know nonsense being relayed to me through my immediate sort of you know higher up, um, so we could sort of share a laugh about it. And when someone says something like that to you, you just gotta throw whatever you can at the wall. Like at one point, I actually did start. The one time I actually like sent 
like some character designs that were this awful misguided fusion of you know Seth MacFarlane and Jamie Hewlett that you know obviously looked hideous and so of course they didn't like it because it was what they asked for but I think it's like people have this idea of something vaguely that they want and they expect you to sort of telepathically know what it is so once you identify that that's what's going on you just got to keep sending them stuff um, until they say oh yeah that'll do or that's that's great or whatever and sometimes it's you know the stuff that you're not particularly proud of or it's the stuff that you don't think was the best choice but you know they're the ones with the money so you're gonna do it and I don't know if I ever told you this but my thesis film which is a very pretentious way of saying my my master's degree student film which is very kind of sitcom-y ish I, I kind of half hope to make it into a pilot and it came out very long a sort of 10 minute version of it I did send out uh, to like festivals and networks and it did reasonably okay and one network based in Canada uh, for a while was quite interested in developing it now they were sort of fledgling and they didn't really have a real body of work but they did have money and they did have you know a, a, a TV channel that was you know commissioning content that they were very closely connected to so they for a, a, about six months it was looking like wow I'm gonna have my name on a TV show and thank God that didn't happen because it started this long. I mean, I I now have a renewed appreciation for extras, which the the element of the show where he's he has this idea for a show which is quite similar to The Office, but then it becomes this weird, like over the top, cartoony, pantomime sitcom. That was kind of what happened with this cartoon idea, where what I was sort of going for was a kind of Mike Judgeish thing, you know, like a sort of rough lines, Beavis and Buttheady, because a that's easier to do. Um, and B, it's just sort of more honest, or it was more honest at the time uh, of the kind of stuff I did. And they just wanted it clean and Seth MacFarlane-y, and they wanted lots of... This is another thing that I'm, I'm sure people hate hearing. Wacky. Oh, God. Th- that is that is the most repugnant adjective. You ever meet someone who calls themselves wacky or crazy, and you know instantly that you've met the most boring person in the room? Because <laughs> they're not wacky, they're, they're dullards. Yeah, and it's it's uh, they might be bipolar. Anyway, so yeah, they wanted wackiness. They and they would keep bringing up Family Guy and Family Guy. Yeah, well, you know, and wouldn't it be great? It could be Canada's Family Guy. Uh, and then it got to a point where they were they were sending me my own characters redesigned by their interns, and it was making me sad. Oh. <laughs> and it was taking up quite a lot of time, and I needed to to spend it like actually, you know, doing work, work, and 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 trying to get my name out locally rather than you know these sort of constant international. Uh, nonsense email and so I bowed out of it amicably um, and then not too long ago now I don't think it was the same studio but it was definitely what would have happened there was a show made in Canada I think it was called Crash Canyon and it I've was on it. YouTube for a while seen you've it. seen it yeah. Okay. oh yeah I've seen it so I mean that took all the elements of Family Guy that was the stuff that I think people, even fans of Family Guy, kind of take issue with, the shrillness, the unrelenting kind of obnoxiousness that is actually, when when dosed out in moderation, quite effective. Um, but it was like they were they had watched Family Guy, completely missed the point, and then just turned the volume up on, you know, on, on all these elements, and then just kind of made a patchwork out of them. Mm-hmm. The odd, strong idea, a lot of dialogue written in it that seemed very kind of... Um, I, I suspect there aren't any people listening who worked on it. Uh, if there are, 
frankly, I'd love to talk to you. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in what the behind the scenes thing of that was and how that sort of came to be, as I am with this um, uh, Full English show. Yeah. Because it seems like someone said, and probably over and over again, we want this to be the British Family Guy. Family Guy, by the way, is like, what, 15 years old now? 12 years old? 13, like, 14. It was a while back, you know. Uh, my voice had just broken when it came out, so it was a, it was a long time ago. It's not a, a very up-to-the-minute reference. It is obviously very successful. But it's like, and the same thing kind of happened with South Park when it came out. Like, a, there was this glut of shows that were just very cheaply made and kind of knocked out. Uh, very edgy, very adult, you know, lots of violence and bad language because bad language is automatically funny. Um, I mean, well, Fuck yeah, <laughs> think I mean, think of the, this, the raccoon costume thing. Like, obviously, that's an unpleasant epithet. It's so inappropriate. Um, mm-hmm. And yet it becomes weirdly cute and endearing because that's what he calls himself when he dresses up as a raccoon. Like, it kind of combines the character's uh, implied and oftentimes explicitly stated racism with the kind of childlike naivety. That was why the swearing and the darkness in South Park worked, you know, especially when it was in its heyday, because they, they did have some justification for it. Or they would at the very least say, hey, we're joking, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes people would see that and go, ha racism, that's so edgy. That's a, that's a fear mm. of mine. That really is. If I ever, if I were ever to make a sort of maybe a joke at my own expense, and for people to take things seriously, mm. I think that's a real a real fear, you know, that sometimes clouds judgment and clouds a creative process, really. Yeah. You know how many characters have been renamed to accommodate all scenarios or or expectations? Maybe I think people, the, an audience, should be treated with a little bit more respect. You know, their emotions should be treated with a little bit more respect. It's a particularly pernicious sort of quality of, of watering things down, being hyper-cautious. There's this sort of atmosphere of, of it's it's big in the States at the moment, I expect it will come over here uh, uh, shortly, of this sort of entitlement of, I mean, everyone has a right to be offended. I'm much more offended by, like, lazy writing than provocative or, or quote-unquote edgy writing. And I'm rarely offended by either, really. But, um, you know, that's... that's I'm allowed to be. People can endure me whining if they want, or I won't bother bringing it up. But what started to happen is people... It's not that... It, people, people have lost being comfortable with the right to be offended, and it's become people have no right to offend me. That's what it's... So comedians, stand-up comedians can't use certain like you know terms or they'll get sued on twitter or in their act or whatever and people are now sort of a little cowed by it people are watering down their their act or their if they write for tv their you know scripts or whatever before like you say before they have a chance to to reach the people who would actually get what they're going for but i think it's the same the other way where people are like okay now let's be edgy as possible and let's be let's pull out all the stops and no prisoners but they, if you do that with the absence of humor, <laughs> then um, it kind of, it loses its impact. It loses its oomph, you know? Like, I, I mean, I like that sort of response when, you know, something like really, really horrendous is said or done in a TV show or a movie where I'm like, oh my, like uh, Todd Salones is a, a, a movie writer. Stuff that happens in this movie, like, I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe that happened. 
I'm not really offended. I'm a little shocked for like a couple of seconds. And then I feel kind of like good. Like I feel like, wow, good for him for doing that. You know? mm-hmm. So going back to like animation with something like this show, you know, you judge any show and its first episode is, is silly. I, you know, I, 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 before we talk about it in any more length, I'll give it, you know, a few more. My sort of imagined hypothetical situation is that it started off as something that was quite unique that was quite specific to one person's vision and then perhaps became more like by committee mm-hmm. and and possibly people were pushed to making it more family guy-ish because it's, it's right down to the the delivery and all the characters from the the accrued like 10 minutes that i saw had the same one shared personality of person talking like someone writing like they want to sound like family guy but not quite hitting the mark <laughs> They all had that sort of the labored jokes, the the very, you know, oddly dated, like, lampoon targets, like, you know, what, like Britain's Got Talent. Really? This is like, the shame, because when The Simpsons started, Homer wasn't the idiot dad. But now whenever you turn on the TV channel, you've got, you've got four or five different idiot dads. You know, Homer Simpson originally... He had morals and they had stories and they were they were beautiful. So that so this evolution of the character from from a sensitive, bumbling character, which we could all relate to, to this sort of what it goes back to watering down, doesn't it? The audience laughed when he said dough. The the merchandise that said dough selling, let's have him be stupider and stupider. And and then people go, Ah, that's working and then all of a sudden you've got all these sort of clone shows and yeah, it's not yeah. It's 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 not that good. I think it's it's, I mean that's watering down not so much like the edge of the humor, but the um the soul of the humor, the fullness of the characterization. The thing that kind of escapes these people when they they want to create something and they're thinking to themselves, oh, we want to be the next Family Guy, and then they make a Family Guy imitation or a, a something that is very obviously derived from that type of humor. Uh, or that style. What made Family Guy the next big thing of its time wasn't that it looked like Family Guy, you know, because Family Guy didn't exist. Mm -hmm. What made it work was that it was different, was that it was bold. I mean, people said that it was a Simpsons ripoff, but it kind of really wasn't, if if you're assessing it by tone and style of humor. There were elements from a very brief period in the Simpsons history, like the cutaway jokes that they used as kind of a crutch but the dialogue and the the overall sort of story structure just the kind of reality it was you know where dogs can talk and babies can talk its foot was a little more in the cartoony world yeah. than the simpsons was and you know style wise it didn't i mean the simpsons and family guy move in a very similar way now but they didn't at the time so the animation was quite different too. And you know, what made South Park the big deal that it was was that it was very different, very unique. Same with Beavis and Butthead, same as you were saying with The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. You didn't get cartoon sitcoms that had that degree of emotion, you know, or that degree of humor or that degree of, you know, not uh, condescending to the younger audience. They were really just kind of speaking to everyone. So no one is going to be successful in creating the next big thing if they think the way to go about it is to just do a carbon copy of the current big thing. And more to the point, is Family Guy that big a thing anymore? I'm sure it makes a lot of money. I think people are, are fans of it and people probably buy a lot of the DVDs and whatever, but I don't think people talk about it with the same 
you know, a vim and vigor as they might have in the late nineties. But it's, it's certainly long running, so it's it, it's certainly got a, a level of success to it, and and obviously that that is somewhat perhaps somewhat down to its its own uniqueness, and not just the fact that it's mm. certain elements of it. The fact that it's a family, it's certainly not a look thing. I mean, if we take a look at um, Futurama, that that has a tremendous struggle. That's in Matt Groening's style. That's probably the closest to The Simpsons, looks-wise, as any animation is ever going to be. You know, but that's that's had a tremendous history of struggle trying to remain on the air. Yeah, I think also that particular style, it took a long time for people to warm to it. Because if you think, The Simpsons, when it came out, it was very jarring and very ugly. The characters, the yes. overbites, the yellow skin, the big googly eyes, the fact that the characters didn't really have hair. They just had weird sort of pointy things going on with their head. Do you remember the first time you saw The Simpsons? I mean, obviously, you were very young. I remember it maybe the same way that people remember where they were when JFK was shot or, you know, <laughs> okay. something like that. It blew my mind. I was like, wow, when are they going to explain that the yellow? <laughs> Where's this explanation coming that the yellow? And it probably took about two years, you know, <laughs> before before I was like, they're never going to explain why they're yellow. I need <laughs> context. Yeah, exactly. This explanation didn't come. It's, it's, it's the things you dwell on as a kid and the things that become so important as a kid. I remember what my introduction to The Simpsons was. And this is something that I'm not sure if this even really happened or if I just dreamed it. It was a record or a cassette tape called The Simpsons Sing the Blues. It exists. And, okay. This was, yeah, it was like a, a, a collection of blues and soul and R&B numbers as performed by the voice actors who plays the characters in The Simpsons and they were singing them in character. And um, there was like the big single, I think it was a Michael Jackson song. And uh, I was five in my defense, but I thought this record was awesome. So I'd like to apologize to my parents, who I probably made them play it in the car a lot. So that was what The Simpsons were to me for like two years. And then I saw an episode of the actual show, I think, because I didn't have Sky either, but I, I think we they had Sky at Center Parks. Is that still a place? Probably. With I the have, water slides and the trees? <laughs> That's this, all I remember. Water slides still, and trees. still be a dream. But they had Sky in the little bungalows that you stayed in. And I saw an episode of The Simpsons like, wow, they made a TV show of my, my favorite record. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what kind of deep, deep trouble Bart's going to get into with this one. <laughs> uh, the ironic thing is that in the actual, the music in the show is sublime. It's so well orchestrated, mm -hmm. you know, like when they actually sing in, in the episodes, like that Mary Poppins episode where they all for no reason are able to break into show tunes. Then they're all like little sort of sound alikes to Mary Poppins songs. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful, you know, and all those, you know, the, uh, the I can I, I can think of too many to think of one, you know, mm -hmm. but I remember like sometimes the highlight of a Simpsons episode would be like the way they'd put in a song. And uh, one of my favorites was the Stonecutters song. Oh, his, his uh, secret do. society. Yeah, it was wonderful. Um, <laughs> but like I say, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's like pretty much the best show ever um, for 
you know, uh, however many episodes, 150 that I would consider flawless, which is, you know, 150 more than pretty much 90% of every other show out there. So the fact that there are like another 400 afterwards that I'm not a fan of, eh, that's all right. Because, yeah. hey, there was there was this many that's so good. It would be nice if it was the same, but how? it's not even a possibility. I mean, you can't you can't hammer away at the same intellectual property for 25 years and expect it to not, a not grow and b not lose its its charm because everything is ephemeral like that especially when you're dealing with humor when you're dealing with characters mm. you know that's a good point um, every point i make is good steve i'm literally yeah. a genius I, I, but yeah i still sound surprised when i say it <laughs> odd that so linking that sort of back to um uh, what we were discussing before, before that rather well, sort of mammoth tangent, and sort of you know going back to the sort of the the fundamentals, I guess, of humor, and and talking about like the granddaughter of Chuck Jones, and I suppose carrier honor of his legacy. I guess she's kind of taken the reins of his. Does she do a lot of public appearances and promotional stuff for Chuck Jones esque ventures and things? I think a fair few members of Chuck Jones's family, grandchildren in particular, do look after the legacy through the Chuck Jones Centre for Creativity. Mm. Uh, another fantastic part about the festival was that uh, there were some original Chuck Jones drawings oh, wow. uh, on display. And these things were just scribbles. You know, these yeah. are things that they probably took out of his waste paper basket. <laughs> but every single one of them was just gorgeous. The line work uh, was just incredible. You know, a few squiggles here and a few squiggles there. And you've got baby Finster smoking a cigar or holding yeah. a bottle like it's a cigar or walking away and, you know, pulling his nappy up with all this attitude, <laughs> you know, just a, just a quick sketch. And there was some of uh, Hector the dog and it was just some of the best sort of character design. And these didn't go on display, by the way. This was just runoff. This was extra. And me sort of waxing lyrical about seeing some Chuck Jones films or seeing some Chuck Jones drawings. I've think that's what the center for creativity is about you know it's about not only preserving his legacy but continuing with this appreciation for animation and trying to progress the art form another guy at the festival this year uh, whose work was honored who is also in his centenary year uh, but sadly no longer with us is john hallis uh, who picked up his lifetime achievement award well his daughter picked it up for him vivian hallis these guys were looking at animation as as what it was capable of. I think John Hallis, so far, has thought that it would solve conflicts. And I would agree with him. I mean, you know, put me in front of a Chuck Jones cartoon and I'll start giggling along with my worst enemy. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was, it was an absolute pleasure talking to Valerie. She told us a little bit about the work of the Centre for Creativity, a little bit about herself, and mainly about what it was like having Chuck Jones as a grandfather. Well, that sounds good. Uh, let's have a listen then. Valerie Coulson, thank you very much for talking to squiggly.co.uk today. We're here at the Bradford Animation Festival. Welcome to Bradford. Um, I thought it'd be interesting if you could tell us um, what it was like growing up with uh, the great Chuck Jones as a grandfather. Well, he was just fun and funny and bringing in aspects of creativity into life that a lot of people would never have gotten. Okay. One time I went to his house and he wasn't there and he left a piece of artwork of a big huge submarine sandwich and in the submarine sandwich he had cut holes and there were dollar bills uh, sticking out for lettuce in between 
so that, that he was giving, giving me some money and that's how he had offered it to me was through this piece of artwork and this, the, the money as the lettuce. And, um, he also, one year for Christmas, gave me a, a cell of the Grinch and at the bottom it said something like, Valerie, how would you like to do everything you ever wanted to do in San Francisco? Uh, go and go to on the tr- cable cars and go see Alcatraz and you know, if you like to go then say yes and that was when I was 12 years old and he took me to for a weekend to, just he and I to San Francisco for the weekend so things like that like he was generous and he was um, charismatic and he made everybody feel special he made everybody feel like they were they were an intimate part of his life and that was very his kindness his, his heart was very very true. Oh, that sounds like an ideal childhood, going to yeah. uh, San Francisco and things like that. Obviously, lovely memories there. Um, but obviously, um, your grandfather was still creative while you were while you were growing up. Um, you spoke about the Grinch um, and obviously his other creations. His, his latest success in life when he won the Oscar um, for Dotting the Line. Obviously, he won the previous Oscars, but this was the first one that he actually got to take home because he produced the film as well. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about? Your grandfather as a, as a creative growing up and, and the sort of the background of him creating these films while you were while you were growing up yes well when i was growing up with him it was after the dot in the line so he had already received that and i it, it got in line was in 1965 which was just the year after i was born so um, my experience of him was more when he was doing his own films like how uh, stole christmas came after um, the um, Horton Hears a Who and all of that came came a little bit after we got in the line and uh, and then the Ricky Tiki Tavi uh, series came the White Seal Magwe's Brothers and he did a series of um, Cricket in Times Square the Cricket and Yankee Doodle Cricket which were all his original characters and those were in the 70s also so those were a lot of uh, part of my childhood he used to send me letters when I was away at camp with these new characters in it and write these beautiful, beautiful letters and tell me about the new characters that he was developing. So it was definitely woven into to my childhood and then on into my adulthood where I started working for our company, a family company called Linda Jones Enterprises, whose daughter's name, Linda, um, started the company to sell artwork from the cartoons as artwork for people. And that came about 30 years ago where she came up with the idea of selling new pieces of artwork to people on their walls and to allow people to have the memory and the, the joy that comes from seeing the image of some, somebody that you really care about. Um, obviously he was known for um, developing characters uh, such as Bugs Bunny, uh, Daffy Duck and as well as creating characters, Wile E. Coyote, um, Pepe Le Pew for example. Um, now did, were these vehicles for gags that he used at the time when working uh, back in the 30s, 40s. I mean, were these vehicles for gags, or did he have an affinity with some, and did he have a particular favorite that you knew of, or was anything creative that he just enjoyed doing? How did it, how did it work with your grandfather? Mm. I think his cartoons were mostly character-driven, mm. and I think he would say that as well, that, that all of his the things that he did in a cartoon were character-driven, so it wasn't just for the gags. It was, what would this character do? If this character were in this situation, what would this character do? And it would never be out of context. So Bugs only did something towards someone else if he was provoked. He would never just go out of his way to hurt anybody. It was always in defense of his home or defense of, of someone else. 
Uh, and I would say that his favorite characters, uh, he never said he had a favorite. He said he used to dream that he was Bugs Bunny or a Roadrunner, but when he would wake up, he'd be Daffy Duck or the Coyote. So. <laughs> Brilliant. Sweet dreams, that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you showed us one of your favorite films in there, uh, Feed the Kitty. I mean, could you tell us a little bit about you know why that's your favorite and, and, and why it means so much to you, really? I, I don't know anybody who wouldn't be touched by this cartoon with this wonderful bulldog and the little tiny kitty and the, the way that the dog's heart melts so instantaneously and uh, all of his ferociousness is out the door and he's just, you know, in love. And you know, the way that Chuck is able to translate that onto the screen, really, without words, for the most part, that you, you're just you're intimate with the characters from the, from the get. And, love the way that he never shows the face of the, um, the missus. It's always just her legs, so she'd get her personality from that point of view, and everything's at the, the animal's levels. There's just something about it, and it's just a perfect cartoon to me. Excellent. And obviously, your grandfather's work continues to inspire. You've worked with the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity. Can you tell us, as well as the films, what goes on to encourage creativity using the work of your grandfather? Chuck Jones Center for Creativity was, was founded before Chuck passed on, and his idea was to inspire people, inspire people's creativity, and inspire the legacy in each person. He hated the word legacy, so he wouldn't have liked that I used that, but he, he does have a legacy, and his legacy is that he was a creative person who has a plethora of works that people can learn from, and that they can actually allow that to inspire the creative genius in, in one of us rather than thinking that we're lesser than and knowing that we actually have all that we need to be exactly who we need to be and to allow the creativity of our own spirit to come through rather than to think that we're lesser than him once we want his legacy to inspire people. Excellent. Valerie Coulson, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Uh, thank you very much. That was Valerie Coulson talking to Steve, granddaughter of Chuck Jones. Got to be quite a hard act to follow you know having your grandfather be like a legend what a legacy to continue running and it's interesting certainly from her talk at bradford how a sort of a commercial aspect uh, had to sneak into that you know selling animation cells and as a way of people to enjoy uh, these cartoons that they sort of probably had cherished memories of uh, from the past how much do they go for like a tenner uh, <laughs> I imagine it's probably quite. Um, I probably have to save up a bit. I'd want. I'd want a good one. Yeah, I wouldn't. You know, I'd, I, I'd, yeah, you'd want um, the Duckamuck, the one where Daffy's turning around and looking at the camera, <laughs> and he's like got the screwball flag and things like that. That's the one that you'd want. I'd want the shot of Bugs Bunny at the end at the light box, and I'd actually mount it on my light box to be really meta. <laughs> Well, the, the thing about the, the Chuck Jones stuff is that he, he did um, so many so many reproductions and things like that, which do fall under the category. I think finding an original would be a huge problem because back then cells were wiped clean. Mm. Some cells were wiped clean. In fact, even earlier in animation history, one of his first jobs was a cell washer, you know, washing you know, these characters off, off the cells so the cells could be used again. In, uh, in dip. 
In, in dip, yeah. exactly, yeah. In the cell wash. For an original, you're probably looking at a fair few grand. You know, I think I think uh, you'd be you wouldn't get much change out of uh, out of two or three grand. I would imagine. I think I'll wait until I win the Oscar then. Yeah. yeah. When I'm making some real coin. Yeah. Tell me about Random Acts. Well, Steve, according to the website, Random Acts was a short-form daily art strand on Channel Four late nights. It launched in 2011. And in its first year, showcased 260 specially commissioned three-minute films chosen for their bold and creative expressions of creativity. So why are we talking about Random Acts? Well, I think a lot of people actually do know what Random Acts are. As everyone, I think, probably recalls, Channel 4 and animation used to have a quite rich and uh, illustrious history. I mean, some of the best short films of the 90s, I think, were made in the 80s, I guess. And up to... uh, what would, what would you say, the early 2000s, that sort of trend continued for a while? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it was a it was a huge shame, I mean, with budgets and things. Um, I think the last thing it used to make a major splash for Channel 4 animation-wise was the Animator-in-Residence scheme. Mm. It was always nice to see a platform where so many uh, creatives can sort of express themselves through film. And it was great when Channel 4 was such a fine outlet for, for wonderful programming, for emerging new directors. And mm. Random Acts certainly looks like the successor to that. I mean, looking at some of the names on here, you know, you've got work from the, the pen of David Shrigley. You've got the Brothers McLeod on here, who we love. Uh, you've got Stephen Irwin, uh, Phil Malloy. You know, it's it, it all looks great. Did Stephen Irwin do that Moxie film? He did, yes. Yeah, I can tell from the uh, from the still here, mm-hmm. and between them, they kind of cross a sort of fairly large gamut of of you know styles of storytelling, styles of humour. Some of them are very extreme. Some of them are very kind of sweet and quaint. Some of them are quite abstract and artsy. I mean, Phone Home, I've probably seen the most out of all of them. It's gotten a lot of festival outings, you know, and that's a fairly straight laced little nice comedic skit. Um, always gets a good response, you know, as does pretty much most of what you know the brothers McLeod come up with they have a good formula for for endearing you know quality animation and in a lot of respects it's animation that from a visual perspective and from a creativity perspective is kind of in line with you know the 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 type of animation that you would get on channel 4 back in the day i think it does seem that in a time of you know significantly diminished budgets this is the the main successor as you put it steve to that era and a great way to sort of carry on that relationship uh, between animation and Channel 4. Fittingly enough, two of the names from that time in Channel 4's history, uh, Camilla Deacon and Ruth Fielding, have subsequently gone on to form Lupus Films, and they are heavily involved in Random Acts. So there is that tie as well. So I was recently in London to interview some people at Lupus Films about a very exciting new Christmassy film that is coming up. It's a a sequel to a certain British cultural institution that's been kind of setting the industry abuzz, I would say, but there will be a lot more information on that uh, in the coming weeks and on our Christmas podcast. I'm excited. You may even say I'm walking in the air. Yes. Well phrased. (laughs) Anyway. While I was there, I got to bend Ruth Fielding's ear about their involvement in Random Acts and get some more information on how the whole process works and some insight into the forthcoming second year that is due to be scheduled any time now on Channel 4. So here's Ruth Fielding of Lupus on Random Acts. Random Acts. Mm -hmm. This is Channel 4 initiative that's been going for 
a year or two just, years now? Yeah, just over a year. Well, we, um, we were commissioned last September, so September 2011, and then delivered 30 films by September 2012, and mm -hmm. then were commissioned in September to make another 30, uh, taking us up to September 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, a mixture of acquisitions and original commissions. Um, one between one and three minutes and as you've seen they go out late night on channel mm -hmm. four sort of between 11 and 12 depending on where the slots appear yeah um but it's it's a lovely opportunity to work with different people or to work with some people that we've worked with before but we want to give them an opportunity to make a few films mm. um so this year we're working with uh film loy made one film uh, through animate last year uh, and we're doing a series of five with him this time round. Right. And I've also commissioned um, a cartoonist called Morton Morland to uh, make five of the films. Mm -hmm. so there's ten gone already. And then we've done an open call for ten more films. So we we sent out a we did an event at um, Bristol Animated Encounters to sort of make a call for. Uh, new ideas. The the closing date is now passed, so we've got we actually received about I think 114 oh. proposals uh, for films which we're still <laughs> going through. <laughs> uh, yeah. Myself and Chris Shepherd, who's the curator of the scheme, we sort of go through each of the proposals <coughs> and reading it and reading the scripts and the, looking at the visuals that came with them and mm. choosing another ten to commission. And then I think we've got about five or six acquisitions. That we've already made, and uh, how many does that leave? Another five. Um, we're, we're sort of in discussions about what those five should be, so yeah, it's great. So, with acquisitions, are you looking at like films that already have a sort of established reputation? Uh, no, or? we're looking for films that haven't been uh, online anywhere because mm -hmm. the initiative is both TV transmission and online channel four on their on the Random Acts website. Yeah. Um, so if things have been seen online elsewhere before, uh, it sort of doesn't quite sit well with their exclusivity. Right. So um, it's great for us to, to work with lots of new talent and yeah. to be introduced to new directors and filmmakers and have the opportunity to do short films with them. Mm. You know, and then, then you, you never know where that might lead. What was the, the sort of initial idea for this? Um, um, it came from Channel 4 Arts Department uh -huh. wanting to do more short form work and be able to experiment with things across all the arts, so be it poetry, dance, animation, drama, documentary, being able to sort of. Tabitha uh, Jackson is the commissioning editor for arts and she wanted to be able to uh, have a blank canvas for artists to experiment on. She described it when she first talked to us about it, mm. and then she asked a number of different producers who specialise in those different areas of the arts to curate or look after a certain number of films. And then I think they also commission a number direct because they've got over 200 a year they need to mm. commission, so they're going about it in lots of different ways. Yeah. But, but Lupus is responsible for 30, right. and that's all the animation. I don't think it's not all the animation. I think okay. they've commissioned some animation through other sources, um, but ours all have to be animated. Right. Yeah. 
So are there any sort of film ideas or genres in particular that sort of fit in more with a mission statement, or is it um, wide net? They have to be random. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so you know, it's you don't really want to be prescriptive about what is random. But they've got to feel quite Channel Four late night. They can't be. Yeah, they've got to feel like you could switch on and mm. see something like that at that time of night on that channel. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, no, and, and they can't be related in that if, if you want to do three, they can't uh, be a series because right. they have to be, be able to be scheduled randomly. Yeah. Um, so not like, you're not likely to see uh, a series of films one after another. So mm-hmm. they've got to work as standalones. Is this something that you plan to sort of have ongoing? On a oh, it would be lovely. I, 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 I don't know whether Channel 4 will continue with it for a third year. I hope they do, and I hope they'll ask us to, to make some more. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It would be great if they did. And certainly we've kind of um, got into a bit of a rhythm with them. We feel mm-hmm. that, you know, we, can, we, we know what works, and we know which films of... of uh, got the the highest audience figures, yeah. and it so and it's it's interesting to see which films people tweet about and which films people follow online, and 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 that sort of cross platform nature of the films is really important for Channel Four as well. So yeah. it'd be great if they did some more. Yeah. Mm. So when it comes to a, a, an open call. Mm. Is that like literally open to anyone, any filmmaker or studio, or is there a sort of set like? Uh, we did, we did throw it open quite wide this year. So we've got kind of more proposals that we could almost uh-huh. cope with, uh, and that it's closed now. But I, I'm not sure whether we do that again. Mm-hmm. I think in the, the previous year we uh, we sort of invited people to to. Uh, send us proposals because we wanted to work with some we wanted to work with some specific people um, and also because the films are very low budget the people we work with have to be incredibly self-sufficient mm-hmm. because there isn't the the budget to uh, micromanage each yeah. film um, and so they have to be kind of quite reliable. I wouldn't say established because we're looking for people who are, you know, completely new to it as well, but yeah. who are reliable and can actually deliver on a very low budget, which is quite a difficult thing to do. So, mm. and you know, we've had some really, really interesting proposals. So mm. we'll get through. We're having a meeting on Wednesday to go through them all, mm-hmm. choose the ones that we want to commission. But. Uh, you know, actually going through 114 proposals is a, is a lot. Yeah. It's quite hard work when you're only making 10 commissions. But yeah. yeah. But um, we want to pick the best ideas. So. Mm. Do you find that there's sort of a, a, a budding of heads at all in terms of, of one person is really fond of one idea and the other is fond of another? And you have no, to I think Chris and I have probably got quite similar tastes and we've yeah. worked with each other for quite a long time over the years. So. Um, we usually choose the same ideas. He often sees something, you know, a bit 
he might have known some previous work of somebody that I didn't know, and so he's got a bit more kind of background to put into the proposal, as it were, and think, oh, no, I really think you should give this person a try, because I remember their yeah. graduation film, it was amazing, and did really well at festivals, I really think you should give this person a go. Yeah. Um, so, no, no, usually we agree, <laughs> nine times out of ten. Do you find that the um, the lower budgets for these what like one to three minutes? Yeah. Have you found that that's actually helped in terms of people needing to come up with ideas that are more in and of themselves kind of inventive and creative? I in think lower it has. Budget? Yeah, I think it's, it sort of gives people a freedom in a way that you know it's what you can do for it. It's what you can do for the money. It's like how much can you pack in on screen mm. for for. Three thousand pounds, which is a budget, um, and you know, actually, it gives you a lot of creative freedom because it's not. You you, you can, it, it's quite quite often working with one man bands, so people who are, you know, doing everything themselves, nice. and so it's it, you could look at it as funding their work for a number of months mm. for a set fee and seeing what they can do in that time. Mm-hmm. Was uh, yourself and, and Camilla both involved in Channel 4 animation? Yes, we both worked at, at Channel 4. Uh, I worked there for six years, Camilla worked there for three, and that we met there um, and we ran the arts and an- animation department at Channel 4 before leaving to set up Lucasfilm. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. Have you sort of witnessed then perhaps uh, the shifting attitude toward animation in terms of TV programming and I think um, what happens in in, in television is, is is people move around and you get different commissioners so it, it's more about <laughs> shifting personalities to right. shifting attitudes I think you have one commissioner who's particularly fond of animation and commissions a lot and the next person who comes in to do that job might not be a fan and so a lot might not get commissioned or you know so it just depends on on who's in the jobs at the time as to whether they're a fan of animation as to whether they commission a lot so in terms of the way that tv is going and all the sort of developments with online media and, and new ways of broadcasting and distributing content. Mm. I mean, you think that, that things are kind of cyclical in terms of what audiences want, or is it more like things are just constantly changing and shifting? As I think things on? are constantly shifting and changing. I don't think there's a cyclical nature. I don't think we're ever going to go back to the way things were commissioned 10 years ago. Um, Perhaps with the exception of something like The Snowman and the Snow Dog, which is a one-off classic property, um, I think in terms of series and, and you know, children's animation, I don't think we'll go back to the way things were commissioned. I think it's constantly evolving, and as new platforms arise, there have to be new ways and cheaper ways of, of doing things and reaching new audiences, and I think ideas have to be, become... You know, uh, all in cut. You know, everything to all. So they have to work on TV, online, on mobile, on an app, as a toy, as a. Yeah. You know, all these things in one. So it's almost asking the producer to, to create something that is all encompassing in the first place. So I think the way an idea has to be formed is 
he's different mm. to, and I don't think he's going to go back to con- producers only thinking about linear ideas for one platform yeah cool. well thank you very much for thank you thanks thanks for coming in yeah that was Ben chatting to Ruth Fielding about Random Acts there uh, nice to see that um, that Channel 4 are still behind animation there may even be a future for all of us well, I, I was interested to, you know, hear her take on the way things are, are going, you know, and the way that, you know, things are going to be shifting. I don't have nearly, you know, the experience or the know-how, but intuitively I agree with her that I don't think things are ever going to quite be the same again. But, you know, with the shifting sort of climate and the change of how everything's kind of distributed, I think that, you know, what will come could potentially be quite exciting. And I think this is a great way to sort of test the waters a little bit. I think they were involved in a not too dissimilar venture a few years ago that uh, I, it was called Formations. Mm-hmm. And um, if I remember right, because I actually had the, uh, the film I mentioned before, the one that didn't become a Family Guy-esque TV show, uh, I think they gave a shout out to it once, which was nice of them. Um, and then they disappeared. It's still got a YouTube channel, but I think it's a collection of all the animator in residence stuff. At the time, it was kind of a showcase for new films and uh, upcoming talents. And I think it was going in a direction not too dissimilar for what Random X has become now. And then something happened where some of the content was considered too, like, I don't know, adult or obscene, and the whole website went down. And then it re-emerged again. And since then, it's just been a kind of showcase of, of uh, as you've just punched up here, some of the old animator-in-residence films. And that was, I think, the first time that that really kind of yeah that things were getting pulled you know because mm-hmm. of that and the internet used to be like deadwood it used to be just completely lawless and and them days is over i guess which is a shame there's you know some obscene moments and random acts so they don't seem to be shying away from it which is good so keep your eye on channel four for new animation in the coming months uh phil malloy morton moreland various others we just found out actually that dice productions are doing one as well uh they're the team behind man and a cat which uh steve i think you actually once explicitly stated was was particularly evocative of the channel four yeah animation heyday so uh i'm sure they'll be a great fit looking forward to seeing how it all comes together randomacts.channel4.com Next month, obviously, with it being a Christmas podcast, we want to we want to gift as much as possible. We want to fill your stockings with as many goodies as, as we possibly can. So we've got, you know, a number of books and DVDs to give away. That sounds very festive. I think everyone who knows me, they, they refer to me as Ben, quote, the giver Mitchell. So, you know, it, it fits in quite nicely with my altruistic personality. So, yes, competition time. If you're feeling festive or you're feeling lucky, you might win yourself some uh, some Christmassy presents of the animation-type variety. So, Steve, what do we have for the nice people? The first competition that we're going to launch is quite a special one, which you may have seen on the website already, and it's the Arthur Christmas Card Competition. Quite special this. It's going to be judged by the director of Arthur Christmas, uh, Sarah Smith. So if you'd like to send us just any design, so long as it's Christmas-themed, to competition at squiggly.co.uk, the closing date on that one is the 1st of December. Unfortunately, it's open to UK residents only. And yeah, you've got a chance of Sarah Smith seeing your work and a chance of winning some Blu-rays or DVDs. 
Obviously, if you want more information on this, you can visit the Squiggly website. We're really looking forward to seeing the work come in. Nice Christmassy design, something to, to flex that illustration and design muscles you might have. I know there are lots of amazing uh, illustrators and concept artists and storyboard artists and whatnot out there. Why not give it a go? And you might win yourself a lovely uh, DVD. Of a film I will go on record as saying I, I really sincerely enjoyed. Uh, has you know lots of great people in it, uh, very well written, not too like drippy. I think it was possibly even a little misrepresented. I think it actually has more of a kind of dark edge to it in places than uh, the promotion and the marketing gave it credit for. So yeah, I would recommend that as a uh, as a prize. And what better time of year, huh? It's almost as if they released the DVD to coincide with the season. Ho, ho, ho. See? You can't get one past me. <laughs> also, it's a great opportunity to get your um, artwork under the nose of an admin director. More info on squiggly.co.uk, which is our website, by the way. You probably picked that up by now. Also up for grabs, wonderful new book on the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the uh, original Disney classic. It's to mark the 75th anniversary. Good Lord, that's an old film. Obviously, everyone, you know, knows what a milestone this film is, and uh, it's a wonderful behind-the-scenes look at the making of the film. It has lots of juicy, awesome, you know, conceptual art that was never released before, anecdotal uh, insights from people who worked on it, and uh, just something that I think any, you know, Disney fan or animation fan worth his salt should, uh, should have on their bookshelf. You know what, if I could enter this competition, I would. But there are laws in place politics always gets me if you're interested as well you should be you can enter our competition and we will announce the winners on our next podcast go to squiggly.co.uk find steve's review of the book the fairest one of all by jb kaufman and answer the question posed on the article it's an a b or c question which of the seven dwarves does not have hair grumpy happy or dopey submit your answer You'll be in with a chance to win the book, and you'll be the envy of all your your Disney book-appreciating friends, of which I assume is quite a high percentage if you work in the animation industry. It looks like an amazing book, something that uh, should be on everyone's Christmas list, so definitely check it out. That's not all. It, it isn't? We have one more present to give away. Well, for the love of God, Steve, tell me more. It's another book. We just, we're the podcast that keeps on giving. <laughs> this is it. It's another one of these fantastic art of books. This one is the art of Toy Story films. One of. Oh, well, dude. One of my favourite books of the year. Absolute gem. A book that takes you through every single one of the Toy Story films. It also shows you like a fascinating little glimpse into what happened when Toy Story was on hiatus between two and three. Have you mm. heard of Circle Seven? I have not. Nah, Circle Seven was what Disney set up, and it was their division which specifically made sequels for Pixar films because obviously they own the rights. Uh -huh. You know, a few tantalising images of that particular venture, as well as gorgeous pre-production artwork, a little potted history of, of Pixar and what led up to the film. It's simply a, a book to have for Pixar fans. As important as Snow White was seventy-five years ago, Toy Story is. For our generation, I would I would say. So, another A, B, or C question. What was one of the pre-production names for Buzz Lightyear? Was it A, Comic Cliff? Was it B, Nebula Nigel? Or was it C, 
Luna Larry. So simply go onto the Squiggly website, find the podcast page, find this podcast, and click ABRC. So it's going to be a great podcast next time because we'll be delivering all these presents to, uh, not personally, not to the houses, to uh, to the Squiggly audience. And a holly jolly time it will be all round. We really are awesome. Let's just take a moment to pat ourselves on the back. We certainly are, except for next month's where we won't be giving much away. The month after next, sorry. Oh yeah, January you will get nothing. Yeah. It's just the post-Christmas depression. So maybe listen again. And if you want a chance to win either the Art of Toy Story book the fairest one of all Snow White book, or the Alpha Christmas DVDs, Blu-rays. Check out swiggly.co.uk. You can enter any of our competitions. You can enter all of them. That would be a bit awkward if one person won them all, but you can deal with the backlash then. Oh, we must say, competitions close on the 1st of December, and it's open to UK residents only. But they already... I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Now when I, I add it in after this, it's going to seem awkward. Yeah. So Squiggly is not just you and I, Steve. We're something of a growing community, a cult perhaps. We have some wonderful people who have been helping out with the articles, with the reviews, and attending events, interviews on the scene. One of our Squiggly writers, Tanya Vincent, was at the recent Rise of the Guardians press junket, and she got to have a few words with its director, Mr. Peter Ramsey. So yes, Rise of the Guardians, the new uh, DreamWorks film. It's a Christmas Eve film, but it's not really a Christmas film. I mean, it's basically a kind of celebration or getting together of uh, you know Santa and the Easter Bunny and uh, the Sandman and the was it the Tooth Fairy? I'm just going by the poster here. Basically, all the lies our parents told us when we were kids in uh, in animated feature film form. So it's kind of hard to categorize this film. It doesn't really seem to have been pushed so much as a seasonal film. You know, it's, it's certainly the right time of year, but it is kind of a sort of all-encompassing, I guess, fantasy epic adventure, you know? Um, I've, heard, I've heard it being uh, described as the Avengers for kids. Obviously, the, the Avengers is the big, the big Marvel team-up. Isn't the um, Avengers for kids the Avengers? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's yes. going to get some hate now. Yeah, yes, the Avengers for kids, yes. I suppose what the film does is it cancels out that age-old problem of the Christmas movie, is that you release a Christmas movie, you have to wait a year before you release a DVD, so there's no sort of continuing stories for however many weeks it takes for a DVD to gather momentum, you know. But with this, very clever, they can release it at Easter and basically just put the Easter Bunny all over. It's good, it's trans holiday cashing in. It certainly is, yeah. See, that's where the Nightmare Before Christmas missed a trick, because Halloween and Christmas are so close together, and they only kind of touch on the other holidays. If they had equal attention uh, uh, to each one, they could show it eight times a year, as opposed to just twice. Probably wouldn't have been as good a film, and would have lost everything about it that, you know, gave the story structure and uh everything i just said in the last few sentences was a terrible terrible idea i'd make a hell of a marketing executive (laughs) oh god i have no soul anyway here's tanya vincent interviewing the director of rise of the guardians peter ramsey 
Thank you for talking to us today, Peter Ramsey. It's my pleasure. Everyone at Squiggly Magazine is uh, really excited about Rise of the Guardians. Okay. I've been lucky enough to see it and it's uh, absolutely fantastic. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was wondering, um, since this is one of your first feature film directorial roles, mm -hmm. if you give us a brief description of your past work. Oh, um, well, let me see. At DreamWorks Animation, where I've been for about, uh, I guess, uh, just around eight years, um, I started there as a story artist. Uh, I did story work on Shrek the Third. And from there, I became head of story on Monsters vs. Aliens. After I completed Monsters vs. Aliens, uh, I directed actually a short based on Monsters vs. Aliens TV Halloween special. And that is what kind of launched me into Rise of the Guardians. They figured I was ready to handle something a little bigger by that time. So there we go. The film is based on the original books by William Joyce. Mm -hmm. What elements of that story appeal to you? Into a film. Uh, basically the idea that you were going to take these characters that, you know, people have actually believed in when they were children. They, they actually, you actually think they're real. They have a real emotional connection with them. And the idea that you could take them and sort of work with people's perceptions of them and people's emotions that are bound up in them and present these new versions to make them look at them in a new way, uh, in a way that they haven't since they were children. That was really appealing to me and, and really interesting. Because the characters are so well known, such as the Easter Bunny and Santa mm -hmm. Claus, were you ever worried about alienating your audience by taking such loved characters? Yeah, sure. That that was definitely a concern. But uh, you know, we sort of felt that if we, as long as we held true to what those characters represented, as long as we didn't make fun of them, you know, and just remembered what we felt about them when we were kids, that we knew we'd be okay no matter how far we pushed them. I was wondering, as the director, how closely you worked with the animators, and did you give them um, a whole scene to work on, or did mm. they each have an individual character to work on? For the most part, it was individual characters. We would actually have teams of people. There was a Jack team, there was a Pitch team, there was a North team, there was a Tooth Fairy team. So everybody would, you know, we'd have three or four guys who would typically work on that character within a given scene. And yeah, I worked very closely with them uh, every day. Uh, we talked through the, sh you know, talked through the shots. They'd show me different versions. I'd say, you know, I think Jack needs to be a little less nervous here. So calm him down a little bit. Let's put it all in his eyes. And so we would, we were very, very detailed. And I, I tried to talk to the animators as I would to a live-action actor. And we talked a lot about the characters' motivations and, and uh, as as much as we could to give real performances. Did you ever film any reference with them? Oh yeah, plenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did that all the time. Uh, 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 hilarious stuff. You know, the animators were contributed so much, so many great ideas. Uh, it was we had a, we had a lot of fun. Um, the film has quite uh, dark themes, uh, things like mm. loss of innocence and mm -hmm. feeling a bit alienated from the world. Mm -hmm. Were you ever worried about scaring your audience? No, because uh, you know. In thinking, it, the whole theme of our movie is about belief and kind of putting ourselves in the heads of children. And just as we say that children actually believe in these characters, and that's a kind of reality, they, children experience fear all the time. It's one of the big things you do as a child is deal with fear, recognize it, find a way to try to get past it. That's a big part of life. So we didn't want to downplay that or say that it wasn't important if we were saying that these other characters were real. So that kind of became the spine of our movie was... How do you confront it in, in, an, in an upfront way? Okay. And do you have any films that you'd advise people to go out there if they want to make their own films and animations? Oh, God. As far as animation, uh, well, once you get finished watching Rise of the Guardians, uh, <laughs> you know, I love, I, I love uh, all the old Disney classics, I think, are absolutely brilliant. They're incredible. Uh, I'm a fan of the Fleischer Brothers. 
uh, animation, uh, the Superman cartoons from the 30s and 40s, big fan of those. Uh, the work of Brad Bird, who I think is an ultra genius, you know, Iron Giant, Incredibles, Ratatouille. Uh, you know, the other uh, 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 dream, uh, the first Shrek movies, you know, I think are absolute genius. Uh, How to Train Your Dragon. There's so many, you know, there's so many. You know, Pixar. There's, it's a great time for animation. I really do feel like it's a renaissance right now. Well, thank you so much for talking to us at Squiggly today. It's my pleasure. And it's a Christmas classic. So thank, you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. That was uh, Tanya Vincent interviewing Peter Ramsey, the director of Rise of the Guardians, which was released on the 30th of November. He was very generous there with, uh, you know, citing Pixar and particularly Brad Bird as influences to, to his filmmaking, sort of dispelling the myth that there's a, an, an animosity between creatives, particularly in, uh, in the sort of Hollywood side of things. Well, I think when you reach a certain level, you know, you can't... People who get themselves, like, worked up too much over, you know, the notion of someone being better than them or someone being a rival to them or whatever... I mean, it's kind of counterproductive to the whole nature of growing as a creative and, and, you know, honing your craft. You need to be receptive to the other people around you and what other people are doing, what is successful filmmaking and what isn't. And, you know, both DreamWorks and Pixar, at the end of the day, have a solid reputation in successful filmmaking because they make very appealing, very sort of mainstream, for the most part, quite entertaining films. I once, I once read a, a fantastic interview with... Um Paul Mendoza, who's a, a Pixar animator who's been on Pixar since, I believe, Bugs Life or Toy Story or something earlier than that. And the, the interview was very revealing in that the questions that were being asked were questions such as, is Pixar as fun as the DVD extras make it out to be? <laughs> right. You know, is there a monkey on roller skates going around and, you know, does John Lasseter go around firing off party poppers in people's faces and is it is it always custard for dinner you know all this sort of stuff and he was just like well no we're just basically we're just guys doing a job and obviously they share an awful lot in common with uh, with with the guys at dreamworks they're just guys doing jobs and the very good jobs they are doing as well so you can check out the job they did with rise of the guardians at the uh, cinemas now it's probably out by the time you're listening to this get yourself into the christmas easter too fairy sleepy spirit <laughs> exactly yes you're covered for the whole year <laughs> if any of the listeners out there are at all interested in getting involved with the squiggly operation interviews reviews features attending events that kind of thing we're always on the lookout for new contributors people who share the same enthusiasm that uh Myself and Steve and Tanya and all, all the other lovely people who make up the uh, the Squiggly community do. So if you want to get in touch at contact at squiggly.co.uk and if you're on a similar wavelength to us, we look forward to discussing animation with you. We'd like to thank the team at the National Media Museum who put together the Bradford Animation Festival every year and who are as hospitable as ever. Also thanks to Peter Ramsey, director of Rise of the Guardians and interviewer Tanya Vincent. Also, I'd like to thank Valerie Corson from the Chuck Jones Centre for Creativity. Also, thanks to Ruth Fielding of Lupus Films and Random Acts. Any animators in or near the Bristol area may be interested in checking out the CineMe 2012 Showcase, a short film and networking event at Bath Road Studios on Thursday, December 6th, 
about 7.30 p.m. You can come hobnob with other filmmaker types, and uh, they're having a best-of short film screening, including one of mine, The Naughty List, which is lovely of them. For more information and for tickets, check out cinemefilms.com. By the way, if anyone is stuck for a Christmas present to get for the impossible to please independent comics and graphic novel snob in their life, my book Throat is being published in three parts, the first of which is out now on Amazon. It's called Coping is Coping. For more information and to read some of it for free, you can check out throatbook.com. This episode of the podcast was put together by myself at Ben L. Mitchell on Twitter, ben-mitchell.co.uk. It was co-presented by Steve Henderson at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson on Twitter with music by Wesley Allard. And we'll be back soon with what will no doubt be a very seasonally themed podcast. We'll also be announcing the winners for our competitions. So make sure to check back in and check out squiggly.co.uk in the meantime. Have a lovely day, everyone.